Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, Tonight, we have a special long hour conversation that's going to happen in the first half hour. We're going to have with us a uh, national education reporter for Chalkbeat, which is an organization based in Chicago. Um, We have with us Kaylin Belsha. Uh, Welcome, Kaylin. Thank you so much for having me. And in this first half hour, Kaylin and I are going to talk a little bit about what she's been hearing nationally about um, what's happening that so many places have um, implemented what we'll call, um, to borrow from one of our states, what they're calling anti-woke laws um, that aim to conversations about what's happening has happened um, historically. Politically, um, and they have threatened to teachers take away their tenure and what have you. So we're going to talk about that because Kaylin has done a lot of work recently and 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 covered it uh, in her education beat uh, for the Chicago Reporter, Catalyst Chicago, and the uh, Chicago Tribune. Um, and so we have her. We're going to have a conversation, and then we're going to have Dr. Winnie Williams Hall in the second part of the hour, starting at about 6.30, and she's going to talk to us about her strategies as a a high school teacher uh, for thoughtful, responsible conversation on difficult subjects. So I want to jump right in with you, Kaylin, because I have, I mean, there were countless articles that I've been reading, and I have a number of students that are from a lot of places all over the country um, where these... uh, laws are popping up, but mainly it's being framed as um, that teachers can't teach, uh, or at least that's where it starts, teach critical race theory. Um, Very early on, and even last year, very early, uh, I had someone on to talk about what critical race theory was and what what a lot of teachers have said in the meantime is that we're not teaching that anyway. But what I – and I want to – check this with you, but what I've somewhat deduced is that critical race theory has taken on the label for what people want to frame. Instead of saying you can't talk about race, they've, they've done this catch-all. They've put a label on it, critical race theory, and that's what they are calling any and everything that has to do with history and difficult subjects and where some people may feel, uh, uh, I, I don't want to say threatened, but they may feel um, uncomfortable about it. Um, so let me check that with you. Does that seem to be um, for you what's going on? And if not, tell me, tell me what you're hearing. Yeah, I think you got it exactly right. We've seen this critical race theory, you know, phrase has become kind of a catch-all for any conversation that makes people perhaps feel uncomfortable or that has to deal with racism and sexism, um, how systems of oppression work, how inequality works. Um, It's a decades-old legal and academic framework that is usually taught to grad students. Um, I think you would, you know, talk to many teachers would say this is not something that I'm teaching in my class. Um, But certainly teachers are talking a lot about the ways that racism and sexism come up in society, apply to history. Um, And so I think, yeah, this label has been kind of glommed on to larger discussions that really started happening in a lot of places after the murder of George Floyd. And a lot of school districts and a lot of teachers said we need to do a better job of talking about the history of racism and sexism. And we need to do a better job talking about current events in class. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's, that's really kind of what's going on there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I, what I was referring to is that, like you said, they, they're, not, they're not teaching critical race theory. But what do you think is behind, before we get into what teachers are saying, but what do you think is really behind um, 
state legislators' uh, goal here? Like, what are, what are they really trying to accomplish that they say you can't teach critical race theory? Uh, some have gone so far as to say uh, it's because it's dividing our country. What, do you, what is this really about? I mean, I think partly what it has to do is like recasting the way that we think about the founding of our country and Mm. how our country came to be. I mean, we've seen so much pushback to the 1619 project. And Mm. I think the idea that, you know, the ideas that critical race theory talks about is how, you know, racism and sexism are embedded in laws and embedded in policies. It really Mm -hmm. calls into question, you know, the founding um, fathers Mm -hmm. and kind of the work Mm -hmm. that they did. And -hmm. I think that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because it makes them Mm -hmm. question how they feel about the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think, you know, when we talk about um, white privilege more openly in classrooms, I think that that makes white parents often feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a lot of, I mean, we've seen pushback from different groups, but we've also seen a lot of pushback from white parents on these kinds of trainings. And so I think mm-hmm. that the idea that they don't want their children to feel guilty or uncomfortable in class, um, you know, when parents feel something about how their ch- child is learning often, you know, those are really a big emotional response there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is partly what's driving some of this legislators mm-hmm. are both imposing these thoughts and also responding to what maybe they're hearing from parents. Right, right. And, and for me, as I mentioned, I have been reading the, and they come across daily where there's a, a conversation that's happening where legislators have come up with the kind of yet another thing to ban. And so there's, there's all, so now there are a lot of books that uh, talk about racism and, and uh, actually also uh, display the truths about, about um, historical events. Um, I'm sure you've, you've heard about um, the controversy around the book Mouse and mm-hmm. um, and and what it it is a book about the Holocaust and so there was someone um, reportedly in the state of Tennessee who went on record a school board member who said something like why can't they teach um, a less violent version of what happened during the Holocaust which is really astonishing if you think about someone saying that openly and even thinking that way. Um, so that's one side of it. And so it, it doesn't, so it may have started with kind of the pushback of talking about privilege and, um, and talking. Um, now it has moved into a number of other areas. So now there are people who want to talk about the Holocaust as being something that you shouldn't talk about in violent terms when there were millions of people that were killed and then uh, through genocide. Uh, and then there, there are others who are talking about sexuality, uh, even at the high school level, shouldn't be discussed. Um, sexuality. So not, don't talk about gender at all. And, mm-hmm. and so the here is that this is going to this is going to curb conversations that really make the the learning environment not a robust exchange of ideas as it has been uh, posited to be in order to be worthwhile. It's not going to be an exchange of ideas. It actually goes back to everything that we said that that we wanted to avoid, which is indoctrination into a way of thinking. Um, what, how are pe- teachers, so you've talked to a lot of teachers, so how are teachers responding to that, though? Are they afraid? Are they in some ways defiant? And, and yeah, so let's start there. Yeah, I think we've seen a real range of responses from teachers. Um, and I should say that right now there are um, Ed- Education Week has been tracking how many states have an official ban of some kind. And there are now 14 states. So that is quite mm-hmm. a few. Um, mm-hmm. So for the educators who are living in states where there is some kind of law or other um, 
official policy on the books. I would say for them, I, you know, I've talked with many in a couple different states, and I've heard kind of two different responses. One is, you know, often this law is written in a way that maybe it doesn't even actually restrict anything because it's very vaguely written or it's kind of broadly written, but it has the conversation that took place around the law was enough to make people feel afraid that they could possibly face complaints from parents, that Mm -hmm. they could be singled out in some way. And Mm -hmm. so they have found themselves maybe consciously or unconsciously moderating how they talk about racism and sexism in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think something I've heard a lot is that, you know, when a student asks a question, something that they maybe in the past would have shared about themselves personally or some experience that they've had, maybe they're holding back that experience and not sharing how they felt when something racist happened to them. Um, Mm -hmm. I've heard teachers of color say that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also heard people say that they've, you know, kind of rethought certain pieces of material that they might bring into the classroom, um, whether or not if they had a choice to teach a topic in a different way, like maybe they decided to go with a less controversial book, a book that hasn't popped up on watch lists from conservative mm-hmm. groups that have targeted it. Um, you know, I've also heard people say that they've unconsciously found themselves saying the word racist less or just saying the mm-hmm. word systemic racism less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um I've also heard um, some teachers are because, you know, they're in a lot of these laws, it says you can answer questions about these kind of divisive topics is what they're called. And so Mm -hmm. they're doing kind of a more Socratic method, trying to elicit students to ask questions about these Mm -hmm. things so that they can kind of address them. Um, But I've also heard from students say, like, there's a burden on them now. They feel that they need to bring these topics up and that they need to take on some of the role of educating their fellow students about this. Um, Mm -hmm. So that can be a double-edged sword. And then there's other teachers who who say, you know, I am not letting this law, this ban, this whatever this is, affect anything that I'm doing. Like, I Mm -hmm. know that I am teaching true, accurate history or I'm teaching what really happened and I'm teaching what students need to know. And so I'm not letting this affect my work. Um, And I think some people have felt like they need to double down on what they're doing because of these laws, because it's even more important now that these conversations are happening. So I think Mm -hmm. you kind of see two different responses. And then I think others just in general maybe felt, you know, that they were about to embark on work to try to better incorporate student voice into their classroom, or maybe they were thinking about the materials that they were incorporating and wanting to better represent student identity or better represent a fuller version of history. And like maybe these laws kind of made them a little scared. So they didn't mm-hmm. go as far as they maybe would have. So it's, sure. it's hard to like measure what didn't happen because, because of these laws. But I do think we've heard from teachers say that they have felt some fear and then other teachers have said they are, you know, really doubling down. So right, it kind of goes right. both ways. Sure, sure. And I'm sure you heard about Virginia, uh, that their newly uh, elected, uh, his first executive order was what they said he sought to, uh, to ban inherently divisive concepts like uh, critical race theory and its progeny. And so what he did, um, and I'm not sure what st- stage this is in at this moment, but uh, set up what they called a tip line. Um, And this tip line um, was to report teachers that might be doing this. And that's part of what made me go, wow, you know, this is something that I I know that there are teachers unions who challenge uh, the ability to do this, but that that, that's something that's really concerning, that now there's a tip hotline where someone will have to go and defend what they are doing, and that takes a lot of time. Um, you know, the, the fact that someone has a teaching license, their information is already public information. But now, with the kinds of things that are happening, and we hear about threats of people, um, that this, I'm sure, is probably making people take a second look at whether it's worth it or not and probably taking another look at whether it's worth or not to to continue to pursue teaching as a, a career. Um, I wouldn't doubt that they, they think so. 
Yeah, I think the the kind of tactic of the fear mongering around a parent could report you or any citizen really could report you is definitely right. something that is contributing to the fear that teachers are feeling. Um, I would say that, you know, this has kind of been repeated in different places as different kinds of legislation has been uh, introduced. We've seen a couple moves to ask teachers to post all of their curriculum and all of their materials online so that parents can review them, which you know, you could say, okay, it's good for me to know more about what my child is learning about, but it's also kind of an avenue to be able to report people if you're seeing something that you think violates some part of the law. Um, and I think kind of the idea that you could at any point get a parent complaint that get you in trouble at right. school um, can be scary for teachers. Um, I will say in a couple of places we've done some open records requests asking after these bans have passed, like how many complaints is a state actually getting? Often there's been few or none. Um, so I think sometimes it's just maybe enough to have the fear that you can be reported, even if the actuality on the ground is that there aren't that many complaints that are coming in and the state isn't building that many. Um, you know, I've asked some school districts, too, to show me a list of complaints that they've gotten and only gotten a handful, and a lot of them were unfounded. Um, so I think, yeah, there's definitely this kind of balance of, like, how many complaints are actually coming in versus just fear that you could be um, have a complaint about you made. Yes, absolutely. Um, for those of you who've joined us, I'm uh, Brian Perkins, and you've reached the Perkins platform. Uh, and tonight we have a special one-hour conversation, first half with Kaylin Belsha, who is an education, um, national education reporter with Chalk Beat that's based in Chicago. And we're talking about um, the teachers and education system, actually, uh, and how we have uh, this dilemma right now with teachers being um, targeted around what they're teaching and um, having conversations around race. Um, I want to go back just for a moment. And, you know, we, we talked about um, the fact that a lot of teachers have said that they're not teaching critical race theory. Um, what what are the lessons that appear to be the the ones that are making people most uncomfortable? I mean, I've heard things from they don't want people to talk about privilege, the fact that privilege does exist. They don't want uh, teachers to talk about like a real big one is institutional racism, um, mm-hmm. and and what's at question is when, especially when we're talking about from a historical perspective, is that there are some facts, historical facts. This happened. And it's just hard for me to believe that there there is a, a, a considerable following that actually believes that telling of the facts are, that that's harmful to the development of children. I mean, these are things that really happened. And, it, it, you know, it's just, it just doesn't make sense to me. So um, you've, you mentioned parents. Um, what are you hearing from parents? Um, I think, you know, it, it's kind of a variety of things that parents right now have complained about. Um, we've seen a fair number of challenges to materials that have to do with um, desegregation. So the Ruby Bridges um, recent book that she wrote, we've seen a number of parents complain about that book um, for perhaps painting white all white people as racist um, in the kind of tenet that, of what they've challenged. Um, we've also seen a fair bit of complaints around how slavery is taught, how the murder of indigenous peoples has been taught. Uh, you mentioned earlier kind of like this idea of wanting a less violent version of history, the kind of challenge to the Holocaust book. And I, I should say that this is something that we've seen kind of throughout history. This isn't new that like parents have challenged what is appropriate to teach to young children or to teens about what happened. Um, and so I think, you know, we've heard a lot of parents of color will say like, look, my five-year-old knows what racism is and they understand yeah. this concept. They don't have the yeah. privilege to not know what it is. That's so it's right. like, who are we protecting by not teaching these kinds of things? Often it's white children. Um, yeah. So I think that those are kind of the ideas that have been challenged. You also mentioned the kind of LGBTQ books that have been um, banned or challenged. Yeah. And we've definitely seen this kind of 
kind of dual challenging of books about racism and books about identity, as we've seen publishers trying to put out more books that appeal to a wider variety of what kids are interested in and their backgrounds and their identities. Um, I think we've seen some conservative push, um, you know, folks who do not um, believe in uh, LGBTQ and like do not teach that in their churches are upset about that coming into schools. Um, So we've definitely seen those Bans, you know, bans and challenges are going um, kind of parallel alongside this conversation about critical race theory. Right, right. And I, you know, I when when I thought about having you on the show and and what we might discuss, you know, I, I thought about in my experience, my personal experience in in you know whether it's elementary school, high school. And um, you may not know, but I grew up in, um, born and raised in a small town in, in Alabama, northern Alabama. And um, the house where I grew up um, recently, and I'm saying recently in the last 10 to 15 years, um, there's been, you know, a lot of historical uh, placards and signs, you know, to get people to come and do uh, history tours or what have you. But one, and I would say, if I if I were to measure it out, I'm going to say about 50 yards from my childhood bedroom um, is a is a sign on on a street corner, and on that sign it is uh, indicating uh, a part of this was the the location for the Trail of Tears, like this that that. Um, legendary um, march of indigenous people from as far away as Florida across the United States to Oklahoma. And, and that close and that significant historical event happened. And dare I say, it was not taught in my elementary, middle school years. Now, we heard about it, but it was definitely a less violent, more uh, kind of easy on the ear what really happened. And I say that to say that, you know, there's really no less violent way to talk about if you start asking questions, because I don't remember us having detailed discussions about Trail of Tears and what happened. Uh, it was not until I became an adult and started to, you know, just curiosity uh, from a historical perspective. What was this? What was this about? And was horrified to learn the details, obviously. Um, but there are countless examples of that. And I'm just bringing that up as one thing that was very significant, that significant to my, you know, childhood in terms of uh, geography. But if you think about all of the things that they're now saying we should not talk about, we should not, we should not tell children about it in graphic detail. And I, I mean, and, and certainly you can spare them some of, of the graphics, but, um, but in the violence, but, but making it appropriate, but having them think critically about historical events, but but I, I agree with you, what you said about um, some people believing that the founding of the country is somehow lessened and, and minimized if we tell the truth about things that happened. And, um, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, I, are you hearing anything about um, other like when we talk about some of the teachers, and I have another have a person who's going to come on later and talk about this, um, what she, but that teachers, so you know, sharing ideas so that others can get this information out there. Because I I just keep going back to historical facts that don't you know that don't have anything to do with at least initially the conversation on identity or anything else, but that at a very basic level, we can't even have a historical factual conversation because it's uncomfortable. 
Yeah, I mean, something that I've heard <clears throat> from many students who live in states where laws like this have passed is that it's ironic, they see it as ironic that folks are trying to ban lessons that they say already didn't really teach the full version and did not right. really get into detail and they feel like yeah. didn't inform them. Um, and I think a lot of students also said that they only learned about negative things about their own culture, that they didn't get to learn about a lot of positive contributions that black and indigenous and Latino right. um, you know, citizens made. So I think in the same period of time that we're seeing all these bans and challenges, we're also seeing many states, um, one of my colleagues, Catherine Stout, has been um, chronicling this for us at Chalkbeat. There's been many efforts to expand what schools are teaching. Um, mm. I think if you talk to teachers, you know, in their teacher prep programs, often they, they too, in the same way that you didn't get to learn about what happened in your own community, like they're not getting to learn as much about what happened in the past either, which makes it hard for them to teach because they're having to go out and seek the information and supplement their own curriculum and try to expand what they teach to their students. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think that there's also been a movement to better train teachers about what happened in history and about the contributions of different Americans so that they can pass that down to their students. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen several states in the last few years have passed laws about expanding the kinds of history and culture that's taught in schools. Um, notably, I mean, I've seen several states have passed laws very recently about trying to improve how the history and contributions of Native Americans is taught. Um, where I live in Illinois, we passed a law recently around teaching about the contributions of Asian Americans, the first in the country. Um, so I think, you know, we've seen these efforts, but, um, you know, there's still there's still a lot of room and room to grow. And there is a lot of work that teachers are having to do on their own without mm -hmm. a lot of training and um, help and support. And I know mm -hmm. a lot of teachers wish that they had more substantive training on this. Yeah, yeah. And lastly, let's go to talking about the, the state legislators um, that, um, you know, that have led some of this. Um, what do you, what do you see? Are there any um, similarities? Are they kind of borrowing from each other? The, you know, this is what they did in Texas, or this is what they did in Virginia. And so we're, we're going to do the same thing. Um, but I'm just wondering what, where is there some group um, other than maybe a national news media group that might be pushing this as well. Where, where are they getting this as this is a really big issue out there? Yeah, I mean, after um, President Trump introduced an executive order when he was still in office, and it was looking at banning certain kinds of diversity and equity and inclusion training at the federal level, right. we saw many states borrow language from that and kind of put that onto schools and onto um, education departments around teacher training. Um, and a lot, you do see commonalities between many of these laws around banning similar divisive concepts, which often mm -hmm. has to do with not teaching that whole groups of people are inherently racist or sexist or that the United States or a particular state is inherently um, racist or sexist. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you kind of see these ideas repeating. But they do kind of vary by states, and, and we've seen kind of efforts to break it off and spin it off around kind of the curriculum transparency rules and some other ideas that people have had. Um, so it kind of has morphed and, and changed depending on where we are in the legislative session. And right now there are still legislatures that are considering different forms of bills. Um, my colleague in Indiana, um, Alexandra Appleton, had just chronicled what happened with their bill, and it died, and now it might get resurrected in different forms. And so... It's kind of been a very hard thing to follow. Um, there are some national groups that have been funding this kind of work, and, and some of it is grassroots, the parents, and some of it is at the national level people are trying to um, spread this. Yes, and so that's uh, interesting you say about the parents um, that are are mostly, at least what, what gets reported is about the parents that come and show up and talk about the you know, no critical race theory. Um, I, I was doing a parent focus group um, over the past month for a district, and um, it was interesting. The question had nothing to do with, with race or anything, and they just wrote in the comment section, uh, critical race theory has no place in our school. And it's like, where'd that come from? We we aren't talking about critical race theory, mm -hmm. but okay. Um, so 
sure. seeing groups of parents that are equally as motivated to defeat this as there are the ones that are really mobilized and, you know, I don't know, maybe they're getting funding, but, um, but are, are you, are you seeing parents that are pushing back saying uh, that they want this, they want the conversations to happen at the same level of intensity as those that are saying it shouldn't happen? Definitely. I mean, if you watch any video of a school board meeting where something like this has been discussed, you'll see parents standing up and saying these are important conversations to have. Um, Often they are parents of color, but they can be white parents, too. You'll often see teachers standing up and saying, I think this should be talked about in my classroom. Um, Mm -hmm. So I do think that there is a pushback, but, you know, that a lot of that is local and kind of depends on whether or not the school board is talking about it versus at the national level. There's conservative activists like Christopher Rufo, who has been pushing this and who has kind of helped spread different groups to really mobilize and to target school districts and to file records requests and to put out watch lists about books that parents can look for. Um, so I think that the the anti-critical race theory movement is very organized at the national mm-hmm. level um, in, some, in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And um, Kaylin, it's been such a pleasure. I thank you for taking time out of your day. Um, I'm looking forward to you staying on this and and bringing us information uh, so that we can know what's happening out there. And uh, please continue to do such a great job with your 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 education reporting. It is definitely needed. Um, and now we have with us, um, Dr. Winnie Williams-Hall. Dr. Williams-Hall, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yes, um, and so she's here, and as we say goodbye to Kaylin, um, again, Kaylin, we, we're going to be on the lookout for what you're writing and saying and doing. Um, we really appreciate you coming out and um, hope to have you back again. Um, so stay well, um, and until next time. Thank you so much. And um, so thank you. Um, So Dr. Um, uh, Williams Hall, um, who is a teacher and uh, educator, author, restorative justice leader, equity uh, advocate, and so much more. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm really impressed by the work that you're doing in Chicago Public Schools. Um, I see where you started your career in 1996. Um, working um, in general ed and then working with students with disabilities. And so uh, we really appreciate you taking out time to talk about this um, important topic. Um, I read about some of the work that you were highlighted as doing that I know you are also part of a STEM academy, uh, but um, yes. the work the work that you have been doing um, to, to kind of um, – be on the other side of making sure that uh, conversations are are facilitated in a responsible way, but that your students have benefit of knowing the truth about history. They have the benefit of uh, of having conversations that that help them think critically about decisions that have been made, whether it's institutionalized racism, um, but a lot of these are families that have been adversely impacted by uh, a lot of what what they need to think about and talk about in school. So I'll start with, tell us a little bit about how you got started in, um, in, in doing this particular work. Um, I'm sure you, pro- you were probably doing this uh, long before it hit the kind of the national scene, but I'd love to hear <laughs> yes. like what was it that motivated you personally to say, I, you know, we we need something different because it's not in the textbooks, you know, so we know that. Um, but what, what got you started in it? Um, so I started in um, working in Chicago public schools, like you said, in 1996. But I served as an aide, and I moved into a classroom of diverse learners, students that have been impacted by um, many different things, um, low income, 
uh, neighborhoods, uh, in immigrants, English language, English language learners, um, different things like that, um, and learning disabilities. So what I saw was like a system of things happening where these students, uh, these marginalized groups were not being identified. So I decided that I would take a step further and go back to school to get my master's degree in special education so that I can be the teacher in the classroom to support those students. And so um, so tell us a little bit about you. Now, are you originally from Chicago? Um, what, how did you? How did you I am. Um, you Born and are raised. graduate of Chicago Public Schools as well? Say that one more time. A, a Chicago Public Schools graduate? No, um, actually, I went to a Catholic school, so I graduated um, from high school from Holy Name Cathedral. Okay, okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, so tell me a little bit about um, some of the things that you, um, you've done, because um, I'm sure, so we have um, educators from all over, and some mm-hmm. are in in some of these states that have passed laws. So um, Kaylin, who was on with us just a little while ago, um, mentioned that um, Illinois has passed some laws that actually try to bring other marginalized groups into the the historical conversation. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're certainly on the progressive side of things. Um, But um, what is it that um, you know, some of the specifics of what you're doing, because we have teachers that are from states that aren't as progressive. In fact, they're trying to uh, limit what they can teach. And so how are you going about um, teaching those and, and handling those conversations? Absolutely. So um, it is difficult to discuss uh, race and racism because the conversation is so complex and so contentious. So some things that I've done, I'm a huge advocate for um, equity. And my lens, obviously, is through the lens of a diverse learning teacher. So I am full support there. Um, I've advocated for my diverse learners um, in not only IEP meetings but with their transitions. Um, I've implemented my own SEL curriculum before that was, as you say, like before that became um, noted, like SEL curriculum needs to be implemented into the classroom. I was already doing that. I didn't call it SEL, social emotional learning. It was what I knew my students needed to have. Um, I served as a mentor. I put into practice the CHAMPS program, which is a positive behavior intervention system, so that when you go to a school, especially a school of color, everything seems so punitive when it comes down to um, expectations or school rules and things like that. Why not do the opposite? Why not focus on the positive behavior that these students bring with them and understand where they're coming from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I served as a restorative practice lead also in my school, and I've also been certified for that. So I include peace circles and talking circles in my school. What you want to do as an educator is make sure that even if it's not the whole school, that you make your class a very welcoming place so that students feel the equity and feel the inclusion. They feel comfortable enough to have these conversations with you, and you feel comfortable enough to have these conversations with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it started, how do you start with the students? Is it... You you start introducing it to them in in uh, or you, you know in terms of what you want them to know or is it that they they spark conversations based on what they're reading? So what I do every morning is I have a writer's workshop which covers a variety of subjects. We talk about it, we have a discussion about it, and at times we write about it. And what I would tell you is that my students bring this to the table. They bring the hard topics to the table, and I can't avoid it, and avoiding it um, perpetuates the, the silence, which, which creates another problem. So the conversations they want to have, I take a moment and pause, even if my lesson and curriculum is already in place, and I give them a voice, an opportunity to express themselves, and I address it the best way that I can, and we have a discussion about it. Now mm-hmm. I'm creating that environment of inclusion. Um, oftentimes students don't feel that they have a voice in the classroom. And in my classroom, I want them to know that they absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And are you, with the conversations, give us some examples of the kinds of lessons you do 
um, so, you know, so we have an idea of of how that happens. But um, what are what? Just give me give me an example of what you would consider your best uh, lesson, something you were really really proud of. Oh, wow. I think that's an easy one, Um, although the times were, it was not an easy time. So when COVID first hit and Chicago public schools were kind of just hit with the news, hey, you know, this is your last day in the classroom, we thought it would be maybe a week or two weeks. Um, We had um, no knowledge that it would be uh, past a year, two years um, going into not seeing our students. So a sense of isolation setting in. And what I did was I created a curriculum, a COVID-19 curriculum for my students, and it was just something that I came up with. And it included journals and feelings and um, data about the, the number of deaths. It included information about what the coronavirus was and things like that. And then it included talking points about how this virus affected them. And so some of my students, unfortunately, experienced tragedy um, during the pandemic, the loss of family members, the loss of income, um, even the loss of homes, of student kids moving to a homeless shelter, things like that, things that um, no one wanted to address or talk about. I decided to bring it to the forefront. And it opened up a really fruitful conversation with my students. Although we were online, it was a way for us to connect and engage with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, are you? Did you have difficult conversations about how it was impacting uh, minority communities? Is that is that part of what that conversation was about? Absolutely. Yeah. So, although CPS and other huge entities stepped up to bridge the gaps, the pandemic exposed many inequities digital divides, tech divides, it exposed many things. Um, You would think, oh, um, well, we're going online, and some students don't have cable, don't have Internet in their home. Some students never had a laptop or a computer in their home. And oftentimes, because we're in situations where I wouldn't say, you know, we're so privileged, but we have more than some, and we don't think about those types of things because we think that's commonplace when it's not. Right, right. Right. So, you know, what we've been talking about in the first uh, half hour, you know, we we were talking about these laws and and the 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 push um, to not have people um, engage in conversations about race. And so I guess right. explicitly, I you know, I what I saw from you that, you know, you have been celebrated for, you know, just being able to. Um, to do it anyway, you know, to have those conversations. And I guess what I'm trying to, you know, get at or get from you is what is it that you do that makes it, you know, smoother, easier to to have students engage? And I know, you know, you you mentioned that, you know, with coronavirus, then, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of why questions. Um, I last Absolutely. year, I, I, yeah, I had I had a group of of men who were um, black and educators, and they were talking about their the conversations they were having with their boys um, after the George Floyd um, murder, and they they mentioned that you know some of the wise questions that came were really difficult to answer, and so back, you know, you know, and I'm sure there are a lot of things that you're teaching. If we go way back historically in the kinds of of policies that have been enacted, but a why to, so why is it that African Americans in this situation are dying at alarming rates um, uh, relative to other groups? Um, that's a difficult conversation to have, and one that can't be just limited to uh, that, well, it's just the, the onus is on people to not have underlying health conditions, but that there's a historical uh, reason why these health conditions exist. And so, you know, that's what I, I you know, I want to hear a little bit about what you do to 
to still have those conversations when so many people are saying, we shouldn't be talking about that with kids. That's divisive. You know, when you talk about things like um, institutionalized racism, these are things that aren't appropriate conversations. What are you, what are you doing? Absolutely. So, again, I address what my students bring to the table, but I also weave into the conversations things that are happening in current times. Um, and, and you spoke about police brutality and things like that. So because my um, eighth graders are taking civics now, there was a conversation about Emmett Till. And um, I didn't know at first how I would approach that situation because mm-hmm. they wanted to know why. Why did yes. this happen? Yeah. So I opened up the floor to them, and I asked them to tell me what their thoughts were. And they immediately started telling me things like, well, white people, they hate black people. And I said, well, that's not the entire truth. Let's dig into this a little further. So you have to go all the way back to when um, there was a time when our race was deemed inferior to other races. And um, in school systems, speaking about um, critical race theory and speaking about the um, the slavery, the issue of slavery is frowned upon. So we have to understand that first. So I have to chunk my information and speak to my students in a way that is, is honest, but in a way that they can understand um, without going beyond the boundaries that are set by me or set by the, um, the system as an educator. Mm-hmm. And so um, when they asked these questions, it, it brought into a lot of things because we had a heavy discussion about the Ahmaud Aubrey case and the Cal Rittenhouse case. And we had those discussions, and it was not easy. It was right. not easy. So what I do is I want to know how they feel first, and then mm-hmm. I address that. If there's context that needs to be had or a foundation that needs to be laid, I would dig into that piece of history or find a clip um, of something that I can bring to them that will help understand a little better. If the conversation right. needs to go further, we um, we park a parking lot, put a parking lot there, put a tab right there, and we come back to it. Sure, sure, sure. Um, very interesting. Um, we have a caller that's dialing in from Houston, Texas. Caller from Houston, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, I'm calling you guys from Houston, Texas. I am thoroughly enjoying this conversation. Um, I actually have a, a couple of comments, and hopefully we can tie it in. Um, so the first thing I wanted to say is that for us here, obviously we're one of the most populated cities in the nation. Uh, we have 89 consulates here. Um, so there are many races um, to be discussed when you're talking about race theory. Um, however, what we find mostly is that Race is almost a partisan issue, and many people are discouraged from uh, discussing it because uh, certain parties feel like they have advantages if certain topics are thoroughly discussed or they feel like teachers are being biased when they are talking about particular races. Um, With us recently uh, just having the primaries, you know, it's just a very sensitive time around here where certain parties feel like it's better unspoken than to speak to it because feel as though the teachers are somewhat biased and suggesting who do you vote for. The other thing um, that I hear the teacher from Chicago sharing is one thing that I think is very important. In schools, they talk about rigorous education, and that gives teachers the freedom or the possibility to have this freedom of delving into any topic that is on their curriculum in a very rigorous manner, very detailed, very in-depth. Also, states or cities have uh, teacher evaluation systems, and the teachers that are the most effective are the ones that allow students to be actively engaged and to lead the discussions or to lead the instructional opportunities. So what I hear the teacher from Chicago sharing is that if teachers were not under this um, so-called partisan issue, then there are policies that allow for teachers to actually allow the students to sort of 
take the discussions to a very in-depth area. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that's what I that's what I hear from the that's what I hear from the speaker allowing the students to sort of lead uh, the instruction, mm-hmm. which will entail which will result in the student uh, the teachers getting a higher evaluation. But mm-hmm. you know that's going to require that teachers actually be really prepared for the lesson, really anticipating misconceptions, really being able to prepare for probing questions that can. Uh, really lend itself to an in-depth discussion, but um, that's what we have here. We just have that partisan issue that's kind of overarching as a, as a dark cloud for some, and then you have teachers that are just really not putting the time and energy to really develop very rigorous lessons that will allow them to tactfully delve into those type of topics that are led by the student. So that's what I want yeah. to add. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, I, I want to go back to something that you said, um, uh, Dr. Williams Hall, that about what you were doing by letting them bring it in. I did still hear from you a little bit of, you know, I can't go too far with this. You know, I'm, I, I did hear a little bit of, you know, there's only so much I'm allowed to do. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and it sounds like, look, there's more I would do um, if I, you know, if it weren't illegal or if it were not, um, were not um, prohibited, uh, you know, you you don't get to cover. Right. And so, what I understand, and and I want others to understand, is that racism. Um, was woven into the fabric of our society a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And um, the notion that it should be avoided or not um, addressed will further divide our society. And I think that we mm-hmm. witnessed that in the last few years. And it's even brought to the forefront um, when we look at the police brutality and the things that are going on and the inequities that are surfacing in um, lower-income neighborhoods, et cetera. So I do what I can with what I have. Um, of course, mm-hmm. we're not given certain curriculums that we would like to have, and we see that that's uh, been a fight for a while now. Um, but like I said, I don't have to um, really push or prod too much because my students bring these things into the classroom with them. They have a heavy weight on them. They bring in those traumas. They bring in those misconceptions. They bring in those questions, and it is up to me to address them if they're sitting in front of me. I want them and need them to know, again, that their voice is being heard and they should speak up and ask questions. Yeah, yeah. And and do you find yourself – so you, you are using the students as, a, as kind of a springboard, like what they ask, what they say, but do you find yourself having to, um, to press at all? Um, because, you know – I just wonder how much they, if they haven't, let's say by the time they get to you, um, they mm-hmm. haven't they haven't heard much, and they don't know what to ask. You know, I gave the example that you know I didn't learn much about um, the the period of time, but even before the Civil War, that had to do with indigenous people being run out of their homes and being captured and whole scale genocide in certain areas. We didn't learn about that, and and it was exactly. not until later that I that I learned that this that part of the reason we don't learn, and it's not in a lot of our American history textbooks like the Mexican American War and others that you don't see a lot about it. And I I, I my caller um, that was from Texas, I would love to know what they experienced there. But as an example. Um, that was not taught. And the reason that I learned, or at least that I've come up with that it wasn't taught, is that it is very brutal and and uh, there's no way to kind of say that it was something other than it was, genocide. And we don't, we don't hear about it. And so, like somebody said, look, just leave that part out. We have <laughs> destiny, right? Like we're supposed to, we were entitled 
to go from coast to coast in this, this new world. And anybody else that was there had to get out of the way. And, and all of this where, you know, part of Mexico was well into California and Colorado, right? And then, you know, same with going up into Texas and Oklahoma, all parts of Mexico. And, yeah. but, but those people were, were killed and slaughtered and moved from their, from their land to make room for what we now call those states. But that's something that was not taught and certainly is still not taught. And we could go on and on about those, those lessons. But what I want to do is think is have children think critically, even contextually about why those things happened, you know, back then and what were some of the, the facts, um, that caused that to happen. It looks like our caller heard me <laughs> reference and has called back. From <laughs> I'm going to tap him back in uh, from the switchboard. Okay. Uh, uh, caller from Houston, I see you call back in. I'm just over here smirking. You're absolutely right. I did hear it. What I want to say and come into that is every day our students in our public schools have to stand and pledge allegiance to the United States flag as well as the Texas state flag. Every day, Mm. every sporting Mm. event. So with that comes a nationality, but also a state allegiance and the history of that. So that's what I have to say in response to that. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, um, I thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, uh, it's not called the Republic of Texas for no reason either. Right. But, but those are not things. That's what I'm just saying about the conversation isn't, um, you know, we don't have that conversation. And, and I, to me, those are all necessary to build critical thinkers, people who can see what's going on. But, I, but some of it is that people don't want them to see, but can see what's going on. And how that's even what I was getting your, ready to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are absolutely right because if the content and understanding of why certain things happened in history, it will certainly change the conversation, and there will mm-hmm. certainly be a shift in society. When you are raising youth that are now critical thinkers and they're moving forward with how to shift the society and move forward in leadership roles. That certainly looks different than the way it looks now, than the way it looked 50 years ago. So I mm-hmm. agree with you 100%. I'm just I'm smiling over here. I'm just listening mm-hmm. to you, and I'm, you are absolutely right. Yeah. And that's yeah. the reason why we're in 2022, and we're still fighting for that curriculum to be implemented into the classroom. Why? Well, I personally, I want to encourage parents, you have children, um, today that the, the books are out there that are written by historians. Um, that's what I, you know, encourage you to do that are not written by, you know, people who have done their own, you know, quote unquote research, but people who with integrity and credentials have done um, analyses and they've done, they, they, where you talk about historical fact, where there are artifacts, there are papers and, and documents to support what it is that they're saying, I encourage you to encourage your children to do that, to read. And even if they, you want to talk about, um, you know, kind of groups and, and you know, form, form learning groups, um, but also to yeah. encourage children to go to schools where they have teachers like you that are willing to give them history and give them opportunities to talk about. And by the way, you know, everybody's listening. We're not just talking about history. We're talking about current events. And um, you know, I, I was just watching uh, something just today about, um, you know, the way conflict in Ukraine uh, with Russia, the, the incursion of Russia into uh, Ukraine and and people, you had journalists um, that were making comments like, 
you know, this isn't a third world country, and they have a they have attacked with the underlying, you know, kind of piece here being that if it were a third world country, it would be okay. And so wow. there's so much happening that around just that, but it's all about the way we were educated. So you you will hear there there have been people who've talked about. It. I saw on MSNBC they they mentioned they were like look listen to what some of the the international reporters how they're saying it like they're saying things like well this isn't like something that's happening in the Middle East or Africa this is Europe this is right here in Europe and right. You know, it's like, and, you know, it's like we should be concerned <laughs> and less concerned depending on where it is. But I don't think that people are being malicious when they do it. I think it's a function of poorly educated and kind of uh, they've been socialized to believe that that somehow makes a difference. And the point here, though, is that if it's not European history, it doesn't matter. You know, I... I have, um, in my program, I have principals and uh, people who are are aspiring to be principals, and there's a lot of new language, and I think it probably is uh, concerning some people where they're talking about decolonizing the history history curriculum, like we're going to decolonize the curriculum, and that probably does concern some people. And, and I think that's exactly what you're doing, though. You, you. I mean, I think you are you are going in and giving, uh, giving it straight to them without, you know, kind of a uh, one group is more important than another. Exactly, and there's only so much that I can do at the elementary school level. So that's why I decided to write and put content out there just to bring awareness to what's going on, to what's being left out of the conversation. And as you said, an understanding of keeping abreast of the situations and encouraging those hard conversations, um, and encouraging those higher order thinking questions to spark that in the students. And so I am hoping that educators out there, um, there is a way to do things without um, getting yourself, I don't want to say like in trouble, but there's a yeah, way to yeah. do things to support, encourage, and foster those conversations. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate it. So um, I, I, we've already gone over. I know that, you know, the 30 minutes goes really, really fast. <laughs> um, Indeed. Could you please, please share with people. I know you have, you know, Twitter and, and you've been on LinkedIn. And in, if you have, you know, if you want to share websites where you are putting that material um, where they can find it, and how people can reach you as well to, you know, for consultation around uh, uh, lessons and especially at this critical area where you are at the elementary level. Please share with them. Okay. Um, doesn't matter which platform. I think I'm everywhere now. No, any, any, <laughs> all of them. Any or all of them. <laughs> okay. So I'm at Twitter at... Uh... Hold on, kind of Dr. W E D and there's an underscore there's an underscore uh, D R underscore W E D and that's my Twitter following my Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. Um I can um give you my Gmail that I can be reached and I can forward information from there. Um yeah. and that is D R, so it's Dr. W Hall thirty five at gmail.com. Okay, excellent. And I know there are people who really want to know what to do because it. I, I received a lot of emails and text messages about, um, you know, tonight's broadcast and that people are concerned about um, being targeted by parents. And I guess the last thing, like I said, we're already over time, is that how are the parents receiving um, what you're doing? Um, are, are they are they okay? Have, you know, are they appreciative of the work that you're doing to be responsible? And see, the thing that I want to highlight here 
with what you're doing is that it's thoughtful and responsible conversations. It's not just, you know, let me just throw the kids into a deep end and then have them think that, you know, <laughs> like you said, all all white people are racist because, you know, what the police officer did, you know, um, right. you're, you're being very thoughtful and responsible about the, the level where these children are. How are parents receiving your, your work? So what I do initially at the beginning of the school year is introduce myself via a newsletter. Then I attach a separate um, piece on what we will be working on um, as far as social studies. Um, The parents that do connect with me, and I wish that that number was higher, um, they're very appreciative of the fact that I encourage reading, independent reading in my classroom. So often that's left out, as you said, a part of the conversation, just independent reading. And so um, the parents that I connect with, they are appreciative of the fact that I'm encouraging their student to read and become hopefully a lifelong learner so that they will be able to um, disseminate information that's out there and have a greater understanding of what society presents to you, what's real and what's not. So um, I would encourage more parental involvement with their students, especially in um, our black and brown neighborhoods. I would really encourage that. That support will go a long way. Excellent. Thank you. And thank you so much uh, for the work that you're doing. Uh, Really appreciate it. And for those of you who are listening, been a part of a special hour um, where we've uh, discussed uh, what is happening and, and hopefully you'll be able to get some ideas um, from what we've said here around responsible conversations about race in school. Um, So for the teachers that are out there that are really trying, um, keep up the good work and don't be deterred um, at all. Um, Hopefully this will all turn around soon. Um, So thank you, uh, Dr. Williams Hall, for taking out time of your evening. Um, And so thank um, you. We really appreciate it. Learned a lot from you. Um, To the audience, um, go well, stay well. Until next time, take care. Thank you for having me.